tuning in to the online broadcast network, AfterBuzz TV. Over 20 million weekly downloads in over 150 countries and your number one source for after-show entertainment. Oh, AfterBuzz TV. The destination for TV superfans. Producing aftershows for over 300 of your favorite TV shows. Interviewing celebrities and showrunners. And bringing you behind-the-scenes exclusives. All thanks to E! Entertainment's Maria Menounos, producer Kevin Undergaro, and internet leader Akamai. Now, let the buzz begin! Hello, Nick fans. Welcome back to the Nick After Show here on AfterBuzz TV. Talking about Season 1, Episode 8, Working Late a Lot. I'm Matt Lieberman. Joining me as always, Oriana Leo is here. Hi, everybody. Uh, unfortunately, Marissa Serafini couldn't join us this week, but she will be back next week. I'd be happy to have her back. And we have a very special guest today. Yes, we do. Miss uh, um, Juliette Rylance, who plays Cornelia Robertson on the show. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Matt. Hi, Ariana. Hi. Hi. Um, Hi. So we've been uh, we've been loving you on the show, and uh, we're we're so excited that uh, things took the turn that they did last episode. <laughs> uh, a very exciting <laughs> development. Uh, so what I love most about how we're we approach um, the their relationship, the relationship between uh, Cornelia and Doctor Edwards. In this episode, we, we've skipped enough time to know that they've been seeing each other regularly. Uh, and I love the moment where she says she, the only thing that she's afraid of is that she won't be able to stop. It's not, you know, it could have been a stigma thing. It could have been a, oh, what about my station thing? Because while she is a very modern woman, you know, there's a lot to think about. But that's not who she is. She is a person who loves first and loves, you know, willingly. And I, I loved that. Oh, I'm so pleased. I I, I, um, I loved watching this episode, um, just both because by this point, you know, the stories, the characters are now really sort of developed and you, you sort of really know who everyone is and, and it's just now hurtling towards the last couple of episodes. So, yeah, I think Cornelia at this stage, you know, she's she's fallen sort of madly in love with Algernon, I think. And, um Yes, she's very progressive in, in one sense. And I think race, you know, growing up with Algernon isn't the same issue for her as it is for, you know, many people around her, most of the people around her, including her family. Um, but I, I think she's also aware of the fact, like he is, that how on earth is this going to be able to carry on? Um, if anyone publicly, you know, if this was public, this relationship, Algernon would be lynched. So it's... Mm. I think it's a it's a very real concern that neither of them are taking too seriously in the yeah. moment. Yeah. Well, I mean, who can blame them? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, the first bit of fun that Cornelia has had, and apart from you know tackling typhoid Mary, but in quite a long <laughs> time. It's true, and also just considering. Uh, that her relationship with Philip and his father and how very quickly they intend to strip her of all agency, there's got to be something very, very liberating in taking something that she wants for herself. I think you're spot on. You know, I think what drives that, that moment after, I think it's episode six, when the whole encounter with creepy father-in-law mm-hmm. um, at the end of the episode, you know, that after that, it's sort of... I think she becomes aware of how limited um, her life is becoming or about to become. 
And I, I think sort of, you know, during the riot and, and being so enamored with the man that Algernon has become, she just has a moment of pure rebellion of just throwing caution to the wind and going for it. So I, th- I think it's, I, I don't know where, well, I obviously do know where that's going to take her. <laughs> but um, but it, it's a sort of, it's a, it's a slippery slope. I don't blame her at all for, you know, what she's doing and finally, like you said, having some fun and she says that she yearns yeah. for culture and has a passion for entertainment <laughs> and it's just kind of like, we see yeah. this other side of her, you know, of really like living and loving and having that lust for life and, and especially from what is waiting for her at home as soon as she gets married. Right. I can't, I mean, to me, I just want her to run away. I want her and Algie to run away and be, live happily ever after. Right, sail to Europe. Yes, yeah, sail Let's to Europe. Let's do They're it. much more progressive there. Yeah. To Europe. I mean, I, you know, I think that's the thing is that at the beginning, you know, it's a whole series for Cornelia. She's, she's having to kind of be this person, you know, be a sort of mask of the person that she really is most of the time. Mm-hmm. I think she's, you know, she's pretty intelligent and, um, realizes that the only way she's going to be able to do what she wants to do, which is do something in the world that's useful and interesting, is that she has to put on sort of an armor, as it were, you know, mm-hmm. this kind of very um, uh, sort of, you know, strong woman. But I think underneath all of that, and, and I think you see it more and more through this first season, you see the real Cornelia sort of fighting to get out. And she is, you know, ultimately... Um, you know, a woman who's very passionate and um, uh, and has you know and, and wants to really um, run with that, and sort of is constantly at every turn, even though she's as privileged as she is in one sense, you know, is stopped from doing that. I I feel like I can relate to this so much. I think so many people can when they feel <laughs> dissatisfied with their lives at a certain point before maybe making a big change. Um, but plenty of people don't ever make a change, and that feeling of being stuck or being like a cattle with your blinders on, you know, forcing you to go a certain way and mm-hmm. you only, really don't have any options. I think your performance is quite relatable. Oh, that's good. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I sort of feel the same way about, you know, just where where she is. I think as women we feel like yes. quite a lot as yes. well, even today, you know, which is a, a kind of crazy thing to even say, but it's true. You know, that there is a kind of this weird thing of having to be the career woman that's one sort of, you know, that's one whole side of you and, and the real kind of woman that's sort of, you know, balancing that fine line between sort of almost two two completely different sides that she's, she's having to balance all the time yeah. um, and sometimes getting it right and sometimes getting it really wrong. Yeah. I, what What strikes me most about her is she's somebody who is coming into her own in terms of, of finding a sense of importance, especially through not just mm. running the hospital, but through this uh, this typhoid, mm-hmm. typhoid Mary investigation. You know, she found a, a way that she could help lots of people, a way that she could be active and important and not just be a woman. She was as much of an investigator as Inspector Spate was. And in he, fact, perhaps more so. Yeah, he wouldn't have been him able ever. to get what he mm. wanted to get yeah. accomplished without her. Um, and I, I have to imagine that feeling that level of triumph and then having that, realizing that she may never get another opportunity is incredibly scary. Yeah, I think it's really scary. Mm. Um, you know, especially that huge, you know, the whole Typhoid Mary case, you know, it's a, it's a massive thing to have even got that far. And obviously we've just seen in this episode that, mm-hmm. 
um, you know, Mary gets off, which is a whole other issue. But to even, you know, discover her, find her, um, manage to quarantine her, and, and yet she comes home and, you know, dad's playing poker and, and yes. Philip makes some comment about, you know, it would be a great story, you know, to tell the ladies at lunch. And it's sort of no one pays any attention when actually it was, you know, a huge thing. And there was this incredible woman called Elizabeth Brackwell, who was the first woman in the United States to receive a medical degree, I think mm -hmm. around like 1870. And she published this book called, um, I can't remember the exact title, but something like Pioneer Work in the, the Opening of the Medical Profession to Women. And it sold less than 500 copies. Oh, my which God. Which tells you, you know, how nobody was interested in what, you know, women were doing in the med medical field. So I think for Cornelia, that's pretty frustrating. Um, and I think fuels even more just this, this moment of um, pure pleasure of just following the relationship with Algernon, no matter what the consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about this this trial scene uh, with uh, with Mary Mallon. Um, I just I hated her. She was so smug up there on the stand of just like, oh, you see, Your Honor, you know, they tackled me. There's I there's nothing wrong with me, can't you see? They're just you know they're discriminating know. against oh. me for nothing. And I'm just like like bravo to to her for that performance because mm -hmm. I was just like, oh, yeah. you slime. He did that so great. It's just the most infuriating, and it also <laughs> infuriating speaks, moment. It also speaks to um, the knowledge that people have about, you know, germs, about immunology. Mm -hmm. uh, most people don't know that you could actually be a carrier for something or be immune to it without having any symptoms. And as Birdie says, this is the first yeah. case that they even know of so she's yeah, she's yeah. just flagrant and in your face about it uh because that's i think how most people would feel right absolutely there's no proof yeah, i think yeah yeah uh, did they talk about did they talk about that at all uh with you in in prep preparing for the show i know you guys all got got all 10 scripts at once uh before you got started um did jack and michael or steven at any point you know talk to you about or give you anything to read about the the typhoid mary case to kind of give you some background into what you were investigating yeah yeah jack and michael i mean they researched everything they wrote so heavily i mean mm -hmm. there's so many you know i love watching their twitter feed you know when they're live tweeting through the episodes because there are so many little facts um, just, you know, strewn, peppered all the way through each episode. And for the whole, you know, Typhoid Mary um, section, I think it was Jack uh, told me about Sarah Josephine Baker, who was actually working for the New York Health Department around 1901. And um, she was actually sort of very pivotal in discovering Mary Mallon. Hmm. Um, and so we talked quite a lot about her, and, and they gave me some research for that. But yeah, I mean, basically, it, there was a hell of a lot of ignorance, you know, when it came to anything like that. Of course, the judge would, you know, think, well, there's no real evidence because she was the first case. So I think it's just another one of those moments all the way through the show where, you know, the the the, the doctors, you know, Thackeray and, and the other doctors at that time are like butting heads against the system, against the ignorance of most of the population and you'd kind of hope that a judge would be a little bit more <laughs> aware but 
not not illicit. I, I love when Spate loses it on Mary Mallon, mm-hmm. and he just says what all of us are <laughs> thinking. You know, like, yeah. he loses yeah. it, but he says everything <laughs> that we're thinking. How disgusting do you have to be to have passed this on through your food? Mm-hmm. You've never washed your hands. Or maybe you don't yeah, use toilet paper. I mean, it's just, I love what his reaction. Yeah. It's brilliant. And I also love just, you know, from the beginning, their relationship, Kate and Cornelia, from the beginning, that she finds him so absolutely disgusting. Mm. And by the end, she's kind of with him, you know. <laughs> There's no, she's no, no longer sort of admonishing well, him for the kind of the way in which he speaks, which I love. I love it, too, because, you know, she recognizes in him, even though there, he is pretty repugnant, He's also a repugnant person who treated her in many ways like an equal mm-hmm. when most people treat her as window dressing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't even thought of that until you said that. That's <laughs> a great point. Yeah, and I think as well, you know, that before coming to the hospital, Cornelia's really moved along the kind of upper echelons of society and hasn't encountered that many people, you know, on that level, On you mm-hmm. know, that would speak like state, that would act like state. So... I think there is something about, you know, almost, you know, this baptism of fire into having to work with this guy on a daily basis that that she does sort of take delight in the fact that she's no longer shocked by, you know, as her mother would be, for example. Sure. Um, I want to speak about that scene at the end of episode six, which just thoroughly, it was just appalling mm-hmm. and it, it, it creeped us all out <laughs> so, so utterly and, and you Me were too. remarkable <laughs> in the scene. Um, I, I want to know, just because uh, it was left rather vague when we, uh, I believe we spoke to Stephen Katz uh, about it, uh, mm. di- did you interpret it, it, how did you interpret what he was saying? Because we took it as a sexual thing, mm-hmm. which maybe we're wrong, but we were just kind of terrified for you. I I think you have good reason to be terrified. (laughs) I I took it, and I think, you know, Cornelia definitely took it as, you know, an ambiguous kind of sexual advance. Whether it is or not, I I really don't know. And I think that's something that um, we're just going to have... I'm going to have to wait and see if you are. (laughs) But um, it it is such a creepy moment, particularly him coming into her bedroom Mm, like that. Yes. is just and the fact that it is so ambiguous makes it worse you know it, so it's sort of that strange kind of thing of if, if he'd just come right out and said you know basically you know you're going to be mine <laughs> and we're going to spend many hours in bed together it kind of would have been better i think almost cornelia would have found words to at least you know hit back or done something but because he doesn't actually say it mm-hmm. there's, there's nothing there's nothing of, actionable did I just make that up did yeah that really happen and that's part of that power play of mm-hmm. keeping her terrorized by not being specific about anything but letting her be afraid yeah and giving her exactly because because especially for you know for cornelia i'm i'm standing there going well if i actually call this what i think it is i would be the one who's being completely socially you know, on PC, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not supposed, you know, for me to say it, and he, he actually didn't mean that, I would be the one that would be being, you know, especially in that period. So it would be totally out of place for, for me as Cornelia to respond to that. So I think there's also that, that kind of, you know, just conditioning that she's, that she's grown up with. If you don't call a spade a spade until it's a spade. It know? also mm-hmm. makes me wonder, I don't think this is the first time he's done this. 
Ooh. You know, because he he did it so well. It was so ambiguous. It was so smooth. Oh. That, oh, this can't no. have been, that's even creepier. This yeah. can't have been his first time. I think that's what really hit up, hit me at the core too. Was just. Do we think Philip had a couple of uh, oh. ab- ab- aborted engagements? Perhaps uh, I don't know. Perhaps. Yeah. He always wanted a daughter. I mean, how sick is that? Well, that's the worst thing that's because that's I'm... basically saying that if he yeah. had a daughter, he'd behaving the, be behaving that way with his daughter. That's what I'm saying. Is that I feel. <laughs> Like there's Ugh. opportunity, you know, throughout his whole life to have quote unquote daughters. Jesus, disgusting. I'm not ready to have <laughs> yeah, this conversation. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty freaky. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, oh, boy. can you uh, can you speak to um, your time on set? I mean, what, what was what was your favorite thing to shoot this season? Oh, that's an impossible answer. Uh, no. Oh um, no. Answer. Um, oh, there were so many things that were amazing. I mean, the whole Typhoid Mary stuff, the capturing her was great. That was a lot of fun. And actually, we hadn't really rehearsed it. Um, we kind of, you know, there was a stunt guy, Manny, Manny Severo, who was there kind of prepping us. And, and you know, Mary and I just kind of went off in the corner and said, let's just do it. Let's just see what happens if you just do it. And so we had knee pads on. And I think on the first take, I just flew at her and <laughs> even in Jack and the writers just fell about laughing so that was kind of fun um, but I think all the scenes with Algernon um, you know working with Andre have been incredible he's such an amazing scene partner and we really kind of met a lot before shooting you know up at my apartment or in coffee shops and just talked through the whole trajectory of the storyline between us and rehearsed a lot and I just, that was amazing to, to sort of do that preparatory work together. And then, um, and then those scenes is really fantastic. The um, intimacy but, really but shows. All of it. I mean, the way that Stephen works is so extraordinary. And the way that um, Jack and Michael and Stephen Katz, you know, work on set too is amazing. You know, often Stephen would come in and, you know, we'd all kind of be in the room and he'd say, okay, just, 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 you know, rehearse and, we sort of say, well, where do you want us to be? And he goes, we'll just go wherever you want to be. And and so you have this freedom of mapping out the scene with your fellow actors. Mm-hmm. And then maybe, you know, Steve or um, Stephen or Michael or Jack would change a line, you know, or change a few lines, and they'd be coming up with stuff on the spot. And then Stephen would build his whole shot list based on the, the rehearsal that he just saw. So that was amazing to be in such a collaborative mm-hmm. environment where everybody's just coming up with stuff as it happens and shooting very, very fast. It sounds like um, an amazing we, like theater workshop, mm-hmm. but on these immaculate sets. Yeah, it, it really did feel like that, especially because we didn't have these big lighting rigs as well. Mm-hmm. You know, Stephen wanted to have as, as minimal lighting as possible, both economically, but also for the period, so that you really do feel like you're just pulling back a veil on the 1900s and stepping in, you know, rather than beautifully composed shots where everyone's incredibly well lit and you don't feel like you're really in 1900. Hmm. So that also made it very real that you, you know, you'd come in every morning and just walk around this, you know, complete hospital in a warehouse in Greenpoint. 
that just, you know, felt like stepping back in time. It was really incredible. I have a random question, which was when you uh, sure. did this nude scene with algae where you have are explaining how you yearn for culture. Yeah. I All I could think was, I wonder if it's cold, because we knew from a previous scene where <laughs> the where they're talking about how New York holds the heat in because of the buildings. Oh and I thought, yeah. oh, gosh, she must be freezing. Is that okay, true? I was actually really hot. For some reason, it was really, really warm when we shot that scene. So... You know, I'm very aware of the fact that, you know, um, what viewers are getting my post-coital breath. <laughs> <laughs> freezing courtroom breath. Um, it was, it was absolutely, it was really warm. And I think maybe it was to do with the oil lamp and the fact that it was where we shot the scene was mm. actually really kind of in the center of uh, the, the set on, on the, the, the scene set in the large set was right in the center of it. So we were very much protected from the cold. So well, yeah, played it really it... did have that. It felt like the afterglow of that moment between them Wonderful. in reality. I was going to say you played it very well and the intimacy um, was evident. Clearly all of the work that you two did together preparing um, definitely came through, at least in my oh, opinion. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just wanted to really quick uh, before before we have to let you go. I just wanted to ask uh, if you could if you could delve into a little bit of that work with Andre and kind of about uh, about their past together. Uh, like what sort of transpired, or, or how did she feel about him the last time she saw him versus when she saw him for the first time at the Nick at the start of the series? Oh, that's something that we talked about a lot. Um, yeah, I think, you know, obviously she hasn't seen him for a while and mm-hmm. until she basically finds a way to call him back to New York um, with this position at the Nick. Um, so I think the last time that they've seen each other is before he went to Paris. Um, we kind of had the idea, Andre and I, that, that they've seen each other since Harvard, um, but not Paris. So we sort of played with the idea that maybe something began maybe you know on a very um you know simple level a while back but never really was was um you know consummated so i think that they've always had this incredibly close connection and i think just that you know as so often happens you get a little bit of a distance from someone that you really have a kind of profound connection with and it and just multiplies it hmm all right. Uh, well, Juliet, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Oh, my pleasure. Um, so uh, you're at Juliet Rylance on Twitter. Mm-hmm. That's uh, correct? I am. And uh, is, yeah. is there anything else uh, that you've got coming up soon that you want to talk about while you're here? Oh, um, I've just, uh, I just actually have a movie in the cinema at the moment, which is called Days and Nights. And it's a sort of meditation on Chekhov's The Seagull. Oh, wow. um, and it's a beautiful film with an amazing cast. So um, I'm kind of busy working on that and, and just prepping, really, getting ready for next year for season two. All right. Fantastic. Yay. Well, um, folks, yeah. please follow <laughs> Juliet on Twitter. Juliet, again, what a pleasure. Uh, have a nice day. Thank oh, you. Thank you. Thanks so much. You're you very too. welcome. All right. So, wasn't she great? Yes. So yeah. lovely.
Lovely. Uh, before we continue, I just want to really quickly mention iTunes, folks. I say it every week. <laughs> only because it's the truth. The best way to support AfterBuzz TV is to go to iTunes, rate and review the shows that you listen to or that you watch on YouTube. It's the best way for us to help attract sponsors and guests like the lovely Juliet. Uh, and it, it, you know, it's the only way that you can give direct feedback to us about how we're doing. We want to give you the best possible Nick podcast that you can possibly get. I think we're doing a pretty damn good job. Me too. And at AfterBuzz, we put out over 80 hours of podcast content a week, the widest array of shows on any after show network. I think it's a pretty amazing operation. So if you can, lend your voice, support the cause. Thank you, thank you. All right. right. So, (laughs) Thack and Elkins sitting on the floor, uh, dousing themselves in liquid cocaine. I mean, he really started something. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Well, you thought it was just like for that first time to make it perfect and painless. Yeah. But, I mean, it is cocaine. It is one of the most highly addictive drugs available. And perfect and painless? I mean, maybe you want to do that again. Yeah. Who says usually have perfect and painless once? I mean, anyone you offer them anything perfect. They're going to want it a couple of times. Mm -hmm. Uh, I didn't even think about that. I didn't even consider it when he did it that that would be a component of... I didn't either. That you would want that again and again and again, then like cutting into his his cocaine stores. Which, uh, I love the way that this episode was shot as we watched Dr. Thackeray descend further and further and further into withdrawal and madness. Um, at that first moment where he walks through the hospital past, uh, Dr. Chickering and Nurse Elkins and he walks into the storeroom and he kind of disappears off camera while they're still talking mm-hmm. and then he comes back out. Like, it's just, it's that simplicity and, uh, in the direction that elevates this show above, I think, just about any other show visually on television. Well, and the, that board meeting, like where we yes. hear the insurance premiums and, you know, what are they paying, by the way, $35 a year oh my to God. insure the hospital. Insane. Big to, bucks. To insure an entire hospital. But there, we're listening to this entire board meeting just focus on his face and watching him go down the rabbit hole mm-hmm. of withdrawal. And it's, you're, it's, you're right. It's remarkable. I don't think I've ever seen it before. And I think it takes a lot of cojones to shoot that. Yeah, that absolutely. Way. Because you, you're not shooting coverage. You're not shooting coverage. You're being very specific in your choices. And I'm sure that that cuts down on the shooting schedule. It mm-hmm. makes it everything lean and efficient. Mm-hmm. I, I just, there's never been anything like this, the way that this is produced. And, uh, I feel like most networks would not have the guts to let a director really go to town with this. Agreed. Um, and it's just the, the effect is just remarkable because we are so very plugged into his state of mind. And Clive Owen is I, just, I was just going to say over the moon. Yeah. His performance, just to be able to carry that scene. Yes. Um, so, so effortlessly. Mm-hmm. And when he's just like, Cocaine. He's just drugs. What about the drugs? <laughs> what, about the drugs? <laughs> what about the drugs? We need drugs. This is a hospital. We need drugs to function. Um, and we really get to see, like, even though we, we saw him in withdrawal in the pilot, we haven't really seen him be a fiend. Mm-hmm. We haven't seen the fiend, the addict, really come out yeah. until now. Yeah, this when, is the dark side. Yeah, and as anyone who's ever dealt with an addict knows, the more desperate they get... They will do anything to get that drug. They don't care what else is going on. Mm-hmm. They need to have that drug. Or who they hurt or mm-hmm. what laws they break. Yeah. It's a tunnel vision. It's yeah, it's awful. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's at the worst time uh, because, uh, you know, we have all this damage to the hospital. And 
Uh, he is presenting uh, the paper for Dr. Algernon's uh, or Dr. Edwards' uh, procedure, uh, his hernia procedure mm-hmm. in front of the entire uh, Metropolitan Surgical Society. Right. Um, which I loved uh, the way that that was like shot and we, we have these programs and it's so very stuffy and all these white men with their beards and their coats and their hats. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he's like listening to him this guy drone on about all the particulars about the organization and like basically reading the minutes right. he's just like oh man i got to whoo i got to get out of here i thought it was interesting because first of all we know that he's a great orator we know he's he can give an excellent speech yes so to see him in the state and to see the speech that he gives you're like hmm okay well clearly something's up mm-hmm. but also i think he just doesn't belong there. Like he's not a society man, mm-hmm. and that this is a society. You know, this is a little culture into into itself, and he is this lone wolf. So I think it's aggravating him even more because he's going through withdrawals. We wouldn't have been able to maybe see it. Yeah, so obvious. I think there's also a thing going on in him. Like we learn that bit of information via flashback that uh, this cocaine habit and the the use of cocaine to uh, enable these surgeons to be able to do their jobs mm-hmm. and not go crazy, passed from Dr. Halstead to Dr. Christensen to Dr. Thackeray. And I'm surprised that there aren't more surgeons who are being affected by this, and I have to wonder if he feels the same way right. and kind of hurt and cheated. Because the way that Christensen kind of talked about it, it was an essential thing that everybody did. Right. And no one else is doing it. They're all fine. I'm the one trying to change the face of medicine, but then this Zinberg guy right. is doing the same thing as me, but he doesn't have to take cocaine to do it. Right. How dare he? Right. Yeah. You're absolutely right. I think I I really didn't think about that. But when you're taken taken in under someone's wing and you look up to them as a mentor, you do tend to take what they say as truth, mm-hmm. whether it is or not. I mean, really, that's just trying to convince oneself that everybody does it so it's okay. Yeah, well, we see in the closing moments of the of this episode that he's still very firmly not over Dr. Christensen's death mm-hmm. uh, as he's in the opium den trying to get to sleep and the the image that's haunting him is the moment that he discovered Dr. Christensen's body and then he turns and he sees Nurse Elkins and that's when he covers the body. Yeah. Um, because she shouldn't have to see that. And two things I want to mention about that. One, we were just talking about it before we went on air. The POV shot from Dr. Christensen really threw so me. So creepy. Very creepy. I'm like, he's dead, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're seeing through a dead man's eyes. Mm-hmm. Again, brave. And risky. Like, we just don't see that, I well, feel like. what I love about it is it's very efficient visual storytelling. Mm-hmm. Because when Thack looks right into the camera, he is looking into the eyes of his dead mentor. Yes. Um, it's just, it's a very efficient way to tell a story. We don't need to see, we don't need to see his body. We don't need to see something grisly. Right. You know. Um, the look on everyone's faces is enough. Tells us everything. Yeah. The other thing I was wondering was, what do you think the age difference is between Christensen and Thack? Because... Maybe in Christensen's age, and I'm just being the devil's advocate, maybe there were a lot more surgeons doing it um, because there Mm. weren't as many of them. This was the beginning of surgery, essentially. Mm -hmm. Maybe there were more doctors doing it. I mean, I would say it's it's at least 20 years. Yeah. I was thinking 30, maybe. Yeah, potentially. But that's enough to have a generational gap where Mm -hmm. people don't need to get high all day just to cut someone open. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) I'm guessing. you're, You're right. Um, but I don't think, I don't think that Dr. Thackeray ever saw himself as an outlier in that regard. No, I don't He saw so. himself as an outlier in terms of ability, in terms of 
potential, in terms of what he was trying to accomplish, in terms of aim, but never in uh, illness, never in addiction. Mm -hmm. And now that his supply line has been cut off by this war in the Philippines, you know, who could have predicted, (laughs) Right. you know, um, now now that that's in danger, all of a sudden... He's realizing his own limitations, uh, and nothing is more telling than in the the Thackeray Zinberg comparison. Oh my gosh! Where Doctor Zinberg gets up right after him, and even though he's Jewish, and everyone in this audience has a prejudice prejudice against him, even as he gets on stage, he takes it, he owns it, yep. he makes them laugh, yep. and and makes them feel comfortable and at ease. Oh, okay, he's saying he is what we think he is. He is lower than us. Oh, yeah. Now we can, feel now we can okay listen to him. <laughs> and then he gives this excellent speech and offers up one of the most amazing technological innovations, mm-hmm. I would think, of, the, of their time yeah. um, for medicine, to be able to see inside the human body. And they're like, wow, even a Jewish man can do that. And Thackeray, while what he did was very impressive, and the stats were very impressive... He looked like hell today, didn't he? Yep. Yeah. That's all anyone can talk about. Mm hmm. Uh, and we have the return of Dr. Chickering Sr., mm-hmm. uh, who, the, I love this moment where he's like, you know, you could help Birdie get a job with someone like Dr. Zinberg. And it's like, wow, now I really understand how much you hate me. Yes, yes. You'd rather have him work with a Jew than with me. He's like, I'd rather have him work for the czar than with you. Which is, I, I don't quite understand it. Like, is there a history between them? He just, he's really on this high horse. He doesn't approve of the carnival, which mm-hmm. of course. The that, circus. Yeah, that, that corrects him and says circus. Um, but it's amazing how much he detests Dr. Thackeray and everything he's doing. Mm-hmm. And I can't quite put my finger on it. Say that again? I mean, he just detests him. He really hates him. We find out in this episode he's willing to do almost anything to get his son away from him. Well, I I think it's a couple of things. Is he a degenerate? Do we we know that on some level? I think he he assumes... I think on some level he assumes that that Thackeray is a degenerate uh, just because he works at that hospital. I think more than anything... um, Chickering Sr. is upset because, first of all, Bertie bears his namesake, right? right? And we, we talked about several episodes ago when he first said that they call you Bertie and you accept it like it's like it's a, a, an object of affection when they're laughing at you. He's basically he's, – he's saying he wants his son to be like him because his name is Bertram Chickering Jr. Right. He is another Bertram Chickering. He just and can't let it go. Though. Yeah. He's wasting time with you. He's enamored with you. He'd do anything that you would say instead of doing anything that I would say. And that's the issue. Well, that and the fact that Thackeray is, he's experimenting. He's living on the edge, the razor's edge, experimenting with surgery. Whereas uh, Chickering Sr. is very traditional, Mm -hmm. is very traditional, is willing to look at the papers that are presented for him. But I don't think he's trying to change anything. He has no interest. Dr. Thackeray says good doesn't change the world. Exactly. And so there's this there's this huge gap between the two men. Mm -hmm. And I I identify with Dr. Thackeray so much more than I do. Bertrand Sr., I don't understand his worldview. But yeah. I think you've explained it pretty well. Yeah, I'm very, very curious. There's that moment with Dr. Zinberg. First of all, he he be, makes a beeline for Thackeray, mm-hmm. and he's like, so you must be Gallinger and Chickering. And he's like, he's been doing research on them. Uh, and then Thackeray's like, well, what are you going to be presenting next time? I'm going to be presenting my, my previa paper. And he's like, um, I'd rather not say. Uh, what do you think he's going to be presenting? I don't know, but I... 
Do you think it's a competing preview thing? I have no idea, but I think he it's got to be competing in some way because you don't hmm. you don't do that kind of research unless you want to be one up. Yeah. You know what I mean? You want to be prepared. You want to know all the players. Mm-hmm. Um so to me there's got to be some kind of competition. Yeah. Maybe he's going to unveil the first drug treatment program. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's a surgical society, so maybe not. But still, there's there's something there's something to this guy that is really kind of like, hmm. Mm. Let's put a pin in him. Yeah, I agree. Um, Yeah, I feel like we we've covered most of it, except just uh, you know he's just trying to get. He just wants help. Uh, Nurse Elkins obviously is very concerned about him. Mm -hmm. Uh, She offers him. Uh, two spare bottles of cocaine, but just keeping the third one for them to share together. Uh-huh. Um, and I have to wonder, as much as Thack appreciates her and is interested in her, on some level, I bet he is resenting her for keeping that third bottle to share. Um, yeah, if I was addicted to something, yeah. I wouldn't want to share my supply with anybody. With anybody, for anything. even if she gave that supply to me. Mm-hmm. No, that is now my supply. You're yes. supposed to—that's a gift, and I need it. I need it to change the face of medicine. Right. What you just want to feel nice while we're having sex? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Buzz off. But also, she's enabling him. I mean, we—you mm-hmm. know—in our culture now that we know about addiction, it's like she's in a position of power. Yeah. Um, and she's learning that power by being the drug provider it's true she's but she's just she's so deeply enamored of him of of what he's accomplishing uh, you know at the hospital and how he treats her uh she and she took him warts and all like that's Mm -hmm. the thing is like she's attracted to him in part because he is a drug addict because he's dangerous yes yeah um intoxicating intoxicating that's a good word um i agree i think i mean we'll see as the season comes to a close how this is gonna turn Mm -hmm. out but it it can't be good we also we get that quick scene with Wu, um where uh where you know he tells him yeah i'm not gonna give you anything for free right i don't care if you save my life Wu is invincible but at the same time (laughs) i'll always remember what you did for me you will always have a friend in Wu, uh which like what does that even mean it doesn't seem like i'm getting anything out of this friendship bro (laughs) yes yeah. Yes. I'm like, if what else does he want? I mean, he wants company. He wants opium. If you can't provide either of those, how are you being a friend? Yeah. No. And now he's making everybody pay up front because mm-hmm. of the shortages, mm-hmm. because of these uh, these ships. Um, speaking of the ships, uh, we have uh, Barrow mm-hmm. asking Captain Robertson for money. And these are Captain Robertson's ships. Yes. Barrow's tour de mm-hmm. begging. Tour de beg. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, where Captain Robertson finally is like, hey, so, uh, no, <laughs> I'm not going to give you, I might give you more money in the future, but today will not be that day because you have come to me one too many times. And he says, you know, it's the unceasing assumption that mm-hmm. I'll write that check. And I love the scene and you can really feel that sort of parental feeling yeah. of like, listen, I'm going to do, I'm going to take care of you, but for God's sakes, give it a rest. Mm-hmm. Give me a day. Yeah. Like, and I mean, I wouldn't have known that those were his ships, but clearly this war has, is far reaching in its consequences. Absolutely. Not just for everyone, but I mean, for the Nick and the patients there, mm-hmm. this can't be good. No, it's not. And it's obviously not good for the Philippines. No. <laughs> um, but in any case, a Barrow then tries the church through the connection with Sister Harriet and they're like, yeah, uh, everyone's suffering everywhere. Mm-hmm. We're not giving you any money. He's like, Oh. Yeah. Like, you're doing okay. God's work. He's like, yeah. yeah, okay, so give me some money. 
No. No. No, that's not how God works. No. Get out of here. And usually the churches are the ones begging for money. You don't usually go to the church begging for money. That's true. It's not necessarily the smartest. Yeah. Desperate. Um, And especially, what I love about it is he's saying we have no money to offer you, but he's in this opulent office inlaid with gold Mm -hmm. and... Anyway, but then uh, he goes to and does this cost-cutting measure. Mm-hmm. and goes and fires those two guys at random. Yeah, totally and it's, random. He's just such a coward. He yes. can't just commit. Instead, they're like, "Which ones?" Well, you, because you're insubordinate. You talk back, and and you too. And uh-uh. it was like, and it was just like thinking as a businessman, mm-hmm. wouldn't you want to maybe? keep the guy that's been around the longest or who's the strongest or no no actually no thinking went into this it's barrow just... is not a businessman nope he is a failed gambler and a con man mm-hmm. and uh that does not bode well for the future of the nick uh and we'll see what happens there the other uh lingering thread is uh the tragic gallinger family oh my gosh um and uh gallinger is so excited that he is bringing this new child home um, to Eleanor with uh, Sister Harriet. And Eleanor is appalled at the idea. She's aghast. Yes. She thinks that she is only capable of death. Um, and can I just say, toot toot my own horn, because I was thinking of this last, yes, yes, yes. last week of just like, I don't know if this is a safe place for the baby. Mm-hmm. I mean, we see that she kind of neglect is neglecting the baby, right? Knitting Lily in a cap yeah. while the baby hasn't been changed all day. Mm-hmm. I mean... Lillian, who is deceased. Yeah. Yes. She's clearly lost it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was afraid that this was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And it's happening. Yeah. And I'm very, very concerned about what's going to happen in the future. Mm. Uh, we will find out uh, in the episodes to come. All right. Uh, I think that pretty much covers it. I think um, so. So uh, I'm going to flat out admit that we've seen the next episode uh, via screeners. So we're not going to be doing any predictions tonight. Um, so uh, we're going to wrap it up now. We will be back next week with an all new episode of The Nick uh, with another special guest. Uh, we're going to be having Captain Robertson on the show uh, via phone. Mm-hmm. So uh, please tune in for that. Oriana Leo, where can the people find the you? People can find me on Instagram at Oriana Leo or Twitter at Miss Oriana Leo. Please follow me on YouTube. I think it's called subscribing. YouTube.com <laughs> forward slash The Oriana Leo. I'll have a new uh, episode of Running Errands in Hollywood up by the end of the week. Okay. And you can find me on Twitter at Matt Lee. Lieberman, that's M-A-T-T-L-I-E-B-E-R-M-A-N. You can find all my videos for SourceFed and SourceFed Nerd on YouTube and subscribe to my YouTube channel where I'm doing daily vlogs uh, about health and body image and all kinds of good Ooh, positive stuff. Those. And then we got some TV stuff coming down the pike. Uh, so, you know, it's time to get in early. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. We'll see you next week. Good night. Bye. From executive producers Maria Menunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire AfterBuzz TV staff, we would like to thank you for listening to the AfterBuzz TV network. To watch or listen to other After shows and post comments or questions, be sure to visit AfterBuzzTV.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of AfterBuzz TV. Buzz you later. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principal. 